This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. We have a great show for you today. For this episode, I'm excited to greet Mr. Chris Paget, the president of the Kentucky Genealogical Society. If you take a look at the website at kygs.org, you'll see immediately a well-organized, clean, and helpful website. The society is celebrating their 50th anniversary in 2023. By the end of this episode, my hope is that you will buy a copy or two or three of their excellent books about Kentucky genealogy. They are newly published and excellent resources for the family historian, especially in Kentucky where many records are not yet digitized. I hope you will also donate and join them in their mission. You can also do that by accessing their website at kygs.org. I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, associations, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So, wherever you listen to the program, I really appreciate it when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we meet with Ms. Amber Colbert from the Clark County, Nevada Museum. The Clark County Museum is a 30-acre site that features a modern exhibit hall with a timeline exhibit about Southern Nevada from prehistoric to modern times and a collection of restored historic buildings that depict daily life from different decades in Las Vegas, Boulder City, Henderson, and Goldfield. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical August events for this episode. Happy birthday on August 4th to jazz trumpet player Louis Armstrong. He lived from 1901 to 1971 and was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. Known as Satchmo, he appeared in many films and is best known for his renditions of It's a Wonderful World 
and Hello Dolly. Happy birthday on August 6th to penicillin discoverer Alex Fleming, who lived from 1881 to 1955. He was born in Lockfield, Scotland. By accident, he found mold from soil, killed deadly bacteria without injuring human tissue. He received the Nobel Prize in 1954. What would we do without penicillin? Man. Happy birthday on August 10th to Herbert Hoover, who lived from 1874 to 1964. The 31st U.S. president was born in West Branch, Iowa. He was the first president born west of the Mississippi. On August 14, 1935, President Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act establishing the system which guarantees pensions to those who retire at age 65. The Social Security system also aids states in providing financial aid to dependent children, the blind, and others, as well as administering a system of unemployment insurance. On August 14, 1941, after three days of secret meetings aboard warships off the coast of Newfoundland, the Atlantic Charter was issued by President Franklin D. Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. The Charter, a foundation stone for the later establishment of the United Nations, set forth eight goals for the nations of the world, including the renunciation of all aggression, the right to self-government, access to raw materials, freedom from want and fear, freedom of the seas, and disarmament of aggressor nations. By September, 15 anti-Axis nations had signed the Charter. Happy birthday on August 18th to American explorer Meriwether Lewis, who lived from 1774 to 1809. He was born near Charlottesville, Virginia, along with William Clark. He explored the American West, and in 1805, after a journey of over 18 months, reached the Pacific Ocean. Happy birthday on August 26th to American inventor Lee DeForest, who lived from 1873 to 1961. He was born at Council Bluffs, Iowa. He held hundreds of patents for inventions and was also a pioneer in the creation of wireless radio broadcasting and television. And finally, happy birthday on August 29th to British philosopher and pioneer in modern political thinking, John Locke. He lived from 1632 to 1704. He was born in Wrighton, England. His ideas greatly influenced American colonists, namely that rulers derive their power only from the consent of the governed and the doctrine that men naturally possess certain rights, the chief being life, liberty, and property. Thank you to thehistoryplace.com for today's historic events. Let's drink some tea, some Twinings tea, Ah, that's good tea, good tea. Our guest today, Chris Paget's passion for genealogy was kindled by his parents, who were both avid family historians, who caught the genealogy bug after being captivated by the Roots television miniseries in 1977. During his formative years, his parents spent weekends meticulously traversing cemeteries engaging in oral history interviews with elderly family members and delving into archives. The fervor for unraveling family histories imprinted itself upon Chris, leading him to actively delve into his own ancestry 
since the early 1990s. In recent times, Chris has served as the president of the Kentucky Genealogical Societies for a span of four years. Throughout his presidency, he has orchestrated more than 100 virtual education presentations, shedding light on various facets of researching Kentucky ancestors. In collaboration with two fellow researchers, he played a pivotal role in establishment of the Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund. Over a span of four years, this initiative has successfully financed the digitization of 11 rare collections of Kentucky records, contributing to the preservation of the state's historical heritage. Adding to his accomplishments, Chris not only penned the introduction, but also contributed a chapter to the Essential Guide to Kentucky's Family Research, a publication that made its debut in March 2023. This guide stands as a significant milestone, marking the first comprehensive publication catering to Kentucky genealogy research in over three decades. A native of Louisville, Chris Paget's genealogical pursuits have spanned more than 30 counties. His quest for ancestral roots has taken him to libraries and archives scattered across the United States, reflecting his dedication to unearthing and sharing the rich tapestry of history that shapes Kentucky and beyond. All right, welcome to the program, Chris. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Sean. Congratulations on your 50th anniversary this year. What kind of celebrations has the Kentucky Genealogical Society planned? Well, you know, we when we first started planning, we were thinking about having like a big gala celebration and having a bluegrass band and catering and all that sort of thing. But then what we really decided was we wanted to focus on something that was important to the mission. And so this year we have published two guides to help folks who are piecing together their Kentucky family trees. And these are the first uh, Kentucky guidebooks published in over 30 years. We've also produced a five-part educational series, which we are making free to the public, which runs throughout the month of September. And it's called Becoming a Genealogist or Family Historian. So we now already have, I just looked today, we have over 500 folks that have registered for this all over the place. We're also offering a number of virtual educational opportunities throughout the year. And we've got lots of just fun things planned throughout the year to help celebrate the year. That five-part series, it looks really great. Well, we're excited about it. We think there's a lot of folks out there who want to get involved with their family history, but they might be resistant or reluctant to join a genealogical society. So this is really open to everybody. You don't have to live in Kentucky. You can live anywhere. And is it closed now? Is, you know, can somebody oh. still join? Yeah, no. So uh, we are offering this five part series throughout the month of September. It is completely open. You can register up until the beginning of the series. It's every Friday uh, in September. It's cool. taught by Susan Court, who is a, a pro genealogist. She's been researching for decades. She's published a number of family genealogies. She's very involved in um, the Kentucky genealogical community. And she's an attorney. She's based in Arlington, Virginia. Nice. And we're just so excited to, to be able to offer that because it is, it's for everybody. So um, as I mentioned, I think we have up to about 500 registrations at this point, which 
is great. And I think there's a lot of folks out there who, when they think about family history or genealogy, they might be a little bit reluctant because they like, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know where to begin. So this is for this is for the beginner. Maybe they just took a DNA test or you know, they don't really even know. They're, they're just getting started. This is for folks who really want to just start learning more about their family history. Okay. Fantastic. Now, you were talking about the books that you published as well. You published the first one. It was The Essential Guide to Kentucky Family Research. And now you've published the second one, Kentucky and Its Kin, An In-Depth Guide to Genealogical Resources in Kentucky and Beyond. What's the difference between the two? Right. So the first guide, as I mentioned, this was the first Kentucky guide that's been published in about 30 years. The last guide was published by one of our members back in 1992 with Ancestry, before it was Ancestry.com. It was published in 92. The author was Roseanne Hogan, and she's one of our members. This, The first guide is a guide to helping you piece together your Kentucky family tree. So it is all about all of the resources, how researching in Kentucky is unique from researching in other places. It provides folks sort of step-by-step what they need to know to put together the Kentucky family tree. And it goes to everything from records that are available to cemeteries, to how to locate an obituary, researching different churches. I mean, it is very comprehensive. The second guide Kentucky and its kin really gets into the archives and to the uh, record repositories themselves. So one of the really neat features of Kentucky and its, and its kin is there is a breakdown of the holdings of the Kentucky Department for Library and Archives, which is the state archives of Kentucky. Oh, and we cool. provide county by county what records are available at the Kentucky archives. And in addition to that, we go into the various archives in universities, archives in historical societies, and other institutions throughout Kentucky. So it's, it's much more in-depth around the records themselves, the record collections. So the first guide is you know, how to research in Kentucky, how researching in Kentucky is unique and different. The second guide is a companion, and it's really all about the record collections and the archives that you will need to be able to piece together your Kentucky family trees. Boy, that's fantastic. And we're excited about these two. I mean, we had not published in decades. The Society hasn't published anything since, I believe, the 1990s was the last time it published a, a very niche book on cemeteries and uh, probate records. And we launched the first book in March. Uh, we just launched the second book last month. And uh, so far, we've had a lot of success. And all of the profits from the sale of these two books, they go to what we call the Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund. So when we talk about records in Kentucky, which are very different from records in other states, the vast majority of Kentucky records are not online. Some records have been digitized by you know, the major genealogy sites that everyone is familiar with, like Ancestry or Family Search, but there is a, a number of record collections that have never seen the light of day that are sitting on microfilm reels in archives. And so, well, while you can find some vital records online, finding other records, it, it really requires you to have to go in person to be able to access these records. So what we are doing with the Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund 
is we are trying to get more of these records digitized. And we might talk about this a little bit later, but we're also collaborating with FamilySearch to get more of Kentucky's archival records digitized and online. So, you know, both the Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund and then our collaboration with FamilySearch, it's sort of a two-pronged approach to try to just get more records accessible to people. That's fantastic. Really, really cool. A lot of great work you're doing. Now, I know Kentucky at one point was part of Virginia. That's uh, correct. Yep. I've got a, a family that has a brick wall where it's the, the family was in Crab Orchard, Kentucky, and okay. they were there at the time that it was part of Virginia. So are you including those Virginia records into the digitization? So if you are researching early Kentucky, very early Kentucky, when it was a county of Virginia, it very well may be that the records you need may be in Virginia. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because Kentucky's county formations are just pretty crazy. Kentucky has 120 counties today, which is, I believe, we have more counties than all other states but two. I think Texas and Georgia have more counties than Kentucky, but we have a lot of counties. And as a result, you have to really understand the county formation changes. So in the Essential Guide to Kentucky Family Research, we actually walk you through the formation changes over time in Kentucky. But if you were, you're one of those gifted people who has early Kentucky ancestors who were here when Kentucky was made a state in 1792, you will need to be doing research in Virginia, probably in the Library of Virginia. There's a lot of Kentucky county records when Kentucky was a county of Virginia are in Virginia. They are not in Kentucky. Or they could be in archives all over the place. There are primary source Kentucky records all over the country. I hear about different collections all the time. I just heard about a collection of Kentucky records that's sitting at the Huntington Library out in Pasadena, California. So, you know, Kentucky people, they, Kentucky was a major route for westward, westward expansion. And as a result, you're going to find records kind of all over the place. I'll be darned. That is really cool. Thank you for that. Yes. What's the history of the Kentucky Genealogical Society? Well, it's interesting. It was initially founded by a gentleman who was living in Iowa, of all places. Now, he was a native Kentuckian, but he had moved to Iowa for his work. He just thought, you know, why doesn't Kentucky have a genealogical society? And this was in the early 70s. So he started writing letters to folks. And, you know, this is also near the same time when Roots, the television series, was becoming, it was going to come out in 77, I believe. And so, you know, in that time frame, a number of folks started kind of building a little community through letter writing. And then Edwin Selby, who was our founder, he came back to Kentucky and he ended up organizing a community of folks. And, you know, they wanted to focus on uh, preserving Kentucky's family histories. And so one of the first things that the group voted to do was they worked with a local university and they had a class that one of the professors taught on researching your Kentucky family tree. And from that class, a group of folks decided, you know, we need to form an organization around this. And so that is where the Kentucky Genealogical Society was created. 
It was initially created as the Central Kentucky Genealogical Society, but in less than a year, they decided it really needed to be a statewide organization. So um, we have a photograph, I think, on our website of the founders at a bank branch in Frankfort, Kentucky, when they were setting up their account. And my favorite story about our founder is he has passed, and uh, as have most of the founders. I believe we have one member who is still living, who was one of the founders. But his grave marker has on it uh, his family tree. So if you if you go and visit it, you can see his family tree going back multiple generations. He had it. He had it carved in stone (laughs) on his his marker. So uh, and we've actually had a number of members. We just we had a member pass away uh, just last year and uh, he had the Kentucky Genealogical Society logo etched into his grave marker. So, you know, this is an organization that people have strong connection to. When the organization was first created, it had, I believe, a, a less than a couple hundred members. It has grown in different waves over the years. I would like to say that when the pandemic hit, I refer to that as our revival because we now have about 1,500 members located. We're in many counties throughout Kentucky. We have a large concentration, of course, in the cities. We have members in 49 of the 50 U.S. states. We still don't have a member in Rhode Island. So if anyone is listening to this from Rhode Island, we're actually offering a free membership to someone who lives in Rhode Island who's researching their Kentucky ancestors. But we have members in 49 states, and we have members in eight countries internationally, in Canada, Germany, New Zealand, England, the Netherlands. So it's truly a global organization. And given that we're all virtual now, we no longer have in-person meetings. Everything is done virtually. We don't have a building. We are completely grassroots. So we are a 501c3 federally recognized nonprofit. We have been since 1973. Our board of directors is virtual. We have board members in Kentucky, in Virginia, in Tennessee, in Florida, and we have volunteers really all over the place. So anyone who has Kentucky roots is welcome to become a member, become a volunteer, participate, and help us just strengthen this Kentucky genealogy ecosystem. I find that really interesting that you're a virtual society and you don't own a building. I think that's really, you know, such a cost saving for you guys that you don't have that. And technology will support that completely at this point in our in our maturity in technology. How do you manage volunteers using a virtual society model? Well, you know, it's the first thing we try to do is find folks who are passionate about Kentucky genealogy, but also that they have some sort of gift that they can bring to the table, a talent or strength that we can rely upon. And we ask folks when they sign up as volunteers, we ask them for a commitment. So we're looking for folks to sign on for a year or two years. And uh, we kind of put them to work. You know, we empower them. We give them the the technology, the, the skills they need. We connect them with the other volunteers so they know who they can rely upon and interact with. But it's all, you know, all, all you really need to be a volunteer is an internet connection, <laughs> a commitment, and um, we, we are a fun group, so a good sense of humor. So. Fantastic. Now, you said that the vast majority of Kentucky records are sitting in archives throughout the state. 
when somebody contacts you and they request help from the genealogical society, is the help in the form of recommending where in the state to find the records? We have a website, kygs.org, and we get flooded with contacts constantly from folks who are trying to find their Kentucky ancestors. The first thing that we encourage them to do is become a member. Our annual membership is $20 a year. How we approach helping other researchers is, you know, the the old story about give a person a fish, feed them for a day, teach a person to fish, feed them for a lifetime. We teach people how to become effective researchers. So we are not, we don't have a help desk or a a reference desk. Uh, We're not set up to provide folks answers. We are set up to educate them on how to be really effective Kentucky researchers. On our website, we have a number of tools for our members that are specific to Kentucky repositories. So we've got, you know, where are the records located? The the interesting thing about Kentucky, and and I say this as someone who I'm an eighth generation Kentuckian, and I have so far identified ancestors in 30 counties, Kentucky ancestor records can be anywhere. You can find some vital records depending upon the years that you're researching, and you can find tax list and, of course, census records. But when it comes to the records that really tell the story of our Kentucky families, whether that's church records or employment records or land records or probate records, they're really all over the place. And you have to understand on a location basis, uh, where are the records for that very specific location? So, you know, one of my favorite researchers is a man by the name of James Tanner. And he says that the answer to all genealogical questions is location. And I, I completely agree with that. You have to really become an expert at the location that your people were living in. And so, you know, sometimes we'll have folks that'll reach out to us that'll say, can you help me? I'm trying to find uh, Mary Elizabeth Smith, who lived in Kentucky in 1802. <laughs> and it's, it's okay, where in Kentucky? <laughs> I don't know. I just know that she lived in Kentucky in 1802. So we we try to help educate folks on, you know, just how to become better researchers. And, you know, the other thing we try to do is sort of meet people where they're at. We have everyone in our society from folks who just started researching last week. And I mean, I just was in, interacting with a brand new researcher who they just want to start piecing their family tree together. They don't even know where to start. We have that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have professional researchers who have been doing client work for 30 and 40 years and everything in the middle. And so what we try to do is help people kind of meet folks where they're at. We offer every year programming targeted new beginners, people who are just starting out, who really, you know, need basic information about how you do uh, family research. So we, we offer programs like that. And then we offer programs that are very niche, specific to locations. We just offered a program. We have a series called Researching in the Counties, where we put the spotlight on individual Kentucky counties. Oh, nice. And we just did one with um, Glenn Riggs in Henderson County, Kentucky. He's an expert genealogist in the Henderson area. And so whether it's content for new beginners to very niche content for locations. We offer that. A lot of folks probably heard the phrase sold down the river. That phrase originated, sadly, in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So when Kentucky was formed, 
you know, by the first 25 years of statehood, about 20% of the Kentucky population were people who were enslaved. They were brought into Kentucky from Virginia, from Maryland, from different, from Pennsylvania. And so uh, we do do a lot of focus on helping folks who are descendants of enslaved. We offer programs every year for those, for those folks to help them because there is more complexity tied to doing their types of research. And that has been a big focus of us for the last, I think, three or four years, because it could have been that the Great Migration, they could have went to Michigan or Canada or, you know, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So helping folks that are descendants of enslaved is, a, is an important focus of the society as well. Very good. Where do you store records if you have physical records? Right. So we have an online archive that you can access through our website. And we have a wonderful volunteer who manages that for us. And it is free and it's open to the public. So if you are researching in Kentucky and it just so happens that we have records that you're looking for, you can go onto our, it's an Omeka site and it is keyword searchable. Everything is indexed. It uses OCR character recognition to pull out any keyword that you're looking for. So if you're looking for a family member, you can just go to our Omeka site, type in a surname, and you'll get all the records that we have available. And again, that is that is free. When we created that, we talked a lot about what's the best way to kind of manage this. And, you know, one school of thought would be to put it behind a paywall. But we thought that, you know, we have records that people need, and they just may not be able to, they maybe not do not want to be a member of the society. And we thought, you know, this is a good public service. So we make it available to everybody. Oh, that's great. Well, and to that point, for our Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund, so that is a fund that was created four years ago that our members donate money to every year when they join or renew, or we do little campaigns throughout the year to raise funds for our Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund. And all records that get digitized through that fund are made accessible to the public. So. Uh, as of last December 31st, we had raised $31,000, which funded 11 digitization projects throughout the state. And uh, we have a, a committee of volunteers that different archives, libraries, record repositories, they will apply for grants. And our volunteers read through all these applications and they score them. And uh, the very it's a very ethical process. We have volunteers all over the place doing this and they decide here's the picks of the litter and then those projects get funded and then once they are funded and the work is completed by the local archive repository or library part of the funding agreement is they provide us a copy of all the records that have been digitized and then we put those on our omica site so that folks in the public can you know access them fantastic so, what is that URL for the Omega site? So the Omega site is kygs.omeka, O-M-E-K-A dot net. K-Y-G-S.omeka dot net. Yep. And do a keyword search, location search, whatever you want to search. The neat thing about the software is as soon as we load the records on Omeka, it automatically behind the scenes indexes them for us. So we don't have to do any of that manually. Fantastic. Now, you're a virtual society, but do you bring members or offer to bring members uh, or have any kind of event during the year where members come in to celebrate or any of that? 
Yeah. So what we are going to be doing in the next year is our uh, research road trips where because our members are scattered all over the place, uh, what they tell us they're really most interested in is being able to participate in organized road trips to archives, record repositories, libraries, where they can do research, you know, for a full day. We've, we've done those in the past with the pandemic. We kind of stopped doing those, but the interest is there again for doing research road trips. So we're going to do those again in 2024. We have not done any sort of organized in-person gatherings, just because up until recently, we've had a lot of members who just did not want to meet in person, even though in the pandemic, you know, it continues to uh, persist. But folks just, when, we've, when we have surveyed them, they've not been interested in, in coming together. So that's fine. We're continuing to operate virtually. And I think, you know, as time goes on, we might identify some other in-person opportunities. Okay, fantastic. Now, I'd like to provide listeners with the contact information for the Kentucky Genealogical Society. Their home is Kentucky Genealogical Society. It's kygs.org. You can find them on Facebook at kygenesociety, G-E-N-S-O-C. The Omeka site is kygs.omeka.net. That's the archive, and it's searchable. And on X, which was formerly known as Twitter, you can find them at the Kentucky Genealogical Society. Can you provide the audience with the variety of your membership and the mission and objectives of your society? So we have members in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Our last board of directors, we had actually four generations involved on the board. And it is, it's a mix. Uh, we've got a lot of our membership are women. I would say it's probably about 60-70% women and then about 30 to 40% men. Folks located all over the place. We have people who are in different professions, retirees, we have attorneys, we have teachers, we have you know folks that are living in cities, we have folks in rural areas. It's it is a it is really kind of a a very mixed community. And as I said, you've got people who just started out researching last week, and then you've got professionals who have clients that have been researching for 30 and 40 years. And so the tie that binds them all together is that they have Kentucky ancestors that they are researching or that are important to them, or they just identify as a Kentucky researcher. Or can, they have Kentucky ancestors. They want to stay connected to the genealogical community. And so the mission of the organization is really to advance the education of Kentucky researchers. And so we do that through just a whole host of educational offerings throughout the year. Those are, again, all virtual. Uh, it's to uh, bring Kentucky ancestors together. So all of our members, we have this really um, interesting website where they can, once they become a member, they're able to connect online through a sort of interactive social network that we've created that we call our chat rooms. And so members are able to connect with one another. They can post queries, share information between one another. They've got a challenge that they're trying to work on or they're looking for a record. They can post it and then folks can respond to it. So it's really sort of like wisdom of the crowd. And it's it's a step beyond what you would normally see in like social media and Facebook, because these are actual, you know, genuine researchers who are focused on Kentucky. And then our preservation is critical. It's critically important to our organization. 
central part of our mission. And so that is where our Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund sits, which is getting as many Kentucky records that are rare, one-of-a-kind records that if it weren't for the society, they would, again, just be sitting on a shelf somewhere. Folks probably wouldn't know they were lo- where they were located or uh, how to be able to access them. Through the Digitization Grant Fund, we focus on the most rare, important records first. So that's, you know, we're not interested in digitizing records where there's multiple copies in multiple locations. We're looking for things that are very niche, one of a kind, but that are important for Kentucky researchers. And I'll just, if it's okay, I'll give you an example. So one of the first projects that we took on through that was the Bullet Family Papers Project. So the Bullet family was one of the wealthiest families in Kentucky. They were involved in human trafficking and had enslaved folks for multiple generations, which is where a lot of their wealth originated. Large landholders, very involved politically in the, in the state. One of them was the Solicitor General of the United States. So this is a very wealthy, powerful family. And their papers were all in an archive in Jefferson County, sitting on a shelf. And that archive came to us and said, we want to apply for your grant. And so the grant committee, you know, evaluated the application, said, absolutely. What we discovered through those papers were, you know, names of the enslaved that the Bullitt family had for um, generations. So all of those records now, which previously folks may not have even known they existed, those are available online and they're searchable. And so you can, if you're a descendant of one of those folks, you can find that information out. Previously, it it was very difficult to access it. You had to go on site to a facility. You had to know what collection you were looking for. So that's an example of the types of collections that we are focusing on. Ones that really, from a research standpoint, you can get the biggest bang for your buck. And then the other part of our focus on this is our collaboration with FamilySearch. So FamilySearch, uh, you know, largest organization globally focused on uh, getting records digitized and accessible. They uh, heard about our grant fund. So about two or three years ago, I got a phone call one day from someone at FamilySearch and they were like, hey, we heard what you were all doing in terms of your grant fund. How can we help? And what we kind of decided during that conversation was that what we are doing in terms of the the grant fund is really focused on sort of niche, unique record collections, probably not the type of projects that are a good fit for FamilySearch. But FamilySearch, there are lots of collections that would be a wonderful fit for FamilySearch that are big, countywide collections. And so we entered into this unique collaboration with them where we have a team of volunteers that first they canvass county by county to understand what records are not online or not digitized. And our volunteers, you know, working with FamilySearch, we got a lot of information from FamilySearch, got on the phones, got in and started emailing and tracking down all these different types of uh, records. So we actually created an output of that was a, a canvas of a lot of the major Kentucky record collections that I, I never had seen this before, but it was it was compiled by our volunteers. And uh, what we are now doing is we're working with Family Search, and the society is working with the Kentucky Archives in Frankfurt, 
And we're in the agreement phase right now where we are going to be focusing on three big Kentucky counties in northern Kentucky to get those records digitized and and accessible on FamilySearch. Oh, and let me back right up. Our first project with FamilySearch was in Jefferson County. So Jefferson County's had this record collection called the Jefferson County Estate Settlement Books. Uh, And the collection was from 1800. So Kentucky was founded in 1792. So 1800 through 1910. So 110 years of estate settlement records for the state's largest county. And these settlement records, as you can probably imagine, are when people would pass away all of the things that they owned, the contents of their estates. And given that Kentucky, there was a lot of slavery in Kentucky, there are a lot of names of people in these estate settlement records. So these records were in a box on microfiche and archive in Jefferson County. So it was very interesting. There was a group that came together that included the Jefferson County Clerk's Office, the Filson Historical Society in Louisville, an organization called The Reckoning, which is focused on a lot of uh, projects around slavery in Kentucky, the Kentucky Genealogical Society, and Family Search. We all collaborated together, and, and it took a lot of you know sign-offs, as you can probably imagine. Yeah. But these these microfiche were, you know, what we learned was that Family Search they don't do a lot of microfiche digitization anymore. <laughs> so, so the microfiche were sent to a contractor to have, because this is a lot of microfiche, yeah. you know, 110 years of state settlement records. And so the, the contractor, they have digitized the collection. It is, it's completely digitized. It is now in the hands of family search. They're going through an auditing process. And it could very well be today. This, this, we're recording this today. By the time this goes live, these collections could be on Family Search. But oh, it is, wow. it's a very important collection. And so, and I share this because we're focusing first, kind of like a laser, on the most important collections that are out there, and then kind of working back. So this one was really high priority because of just what's in it, right? You know, when you're thinking about digitizing records, you can like digitize anything, but our strategy has always been like, let's go for the stuff that's, that is going to help a lot of people get us the biggest bang for a buck that's rare. And that is, you know, like I said, just sitting on a shelf somewhere that nobody even knows about. So there's so many collections like this, but you know, you got to start taking a, a bite out of the elephant one at a time. Absolutely. So this is, this is what, where we're at right now. That so, is fantastic. More, more to come. <laughs> that is fantastic, Chris. I met with a genealogical society, I believe it was in Iowa, and their focus was on towns, little towns that had shut down, had gone obsolete. And obviously they had a city hall at one point, and those records from the city hall went somewhere when the town became obsolete. And they were trying to track down where those records went They would go into the town, volunteers, of course, from the genealogical society would go into the town, meet with the town, and whoever was living there at the time, and try to understand where the records went. And many times what they told me was they were just in somebody's garage or somebody's basement, and they were able to get those records. 
I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because two really important record collections for Kentucky. One is Kentucky has a large footprint of government facilities, military bases. There's Fort Knox, there's Fort Campbell, there's a number of the National Forest, there's Mammoth Cave, there's what was a Naval Ordnance, which was a, there's the Bluegrass Army Depot, large uh, military and government organizations had or have footprints in Kentucky. So a lot of Kentucky records, uh, of course, at NARA, whether those are in Atlanta, College Park, St. Louis, uh, I've actually heard that there are Kentucky records in other NARA facilities that you wouldn't expect them to be located at. But so th- there is a lot of Kentucky records at NARA. And I always tell folks, if you're researching in Kentucky and you have any connection whatsoever to the government, their record there could be records in, in the National Archives. Yeah. So that's a really good insight. Another insight that I will share, Sean, that's based on what you're talking about, these, these communities that no longer exist. People always ask me, uh, what's your favorite Kentucky record collection? And I always tell them the collection, it's house repositories. It's the the collections that are in people's attics and basement. Uh, You know, I I tell folks, you know, in Kentucky, you could have a set of third great grandparents that had 10 children. And those 10 children each had five or six children who, you know, now here we are four or five generations later. Those family ephemera and records, they didn't get thrown away. They're sitting in the house of one of your cousins that you just don't even know about. A few years ago, I was contacted by a third cousin of mine, which I didn't realize it at the time, but I had met her when I was very, very young at my grandparents' house when she was much younger. And she stumbled upon an, like an online tree that I had. And she was like, you know, are you researching this particular ancestor? And I said, yes, I am. And she was like, I am too. Why don't you come over to my house and uh, maybe we can you know, work together on this. So, you know, one day just sort of out of the blue, went over to this, uh, at the time I thought it was a stranger. As I said, I didn't know her until we sort of pieced it together. Like, oh yeah, we met a long time ago. <laughs> but I uh, went over and she had a, a gold mine of resources on my great grandmother and her family and, that, and things that I'd never seen or uh, touched. And I had things that she didn't had never seen or touched. And so uh, we collaborated together. And just through that one effort, you know, broke through multiple brick walls. And so Kentucky records are in people's homes. People in Kentucky hold on to things. There's a, a story that I will share about a cemetery that I visited with my mother. Uh, I think I mentioned that both my mom and my dad, they were both family historians. And so growing up, they would take me to lots of interviews with, you know, elderly family members where they'd get out of the tape recorder or we'd go to a cemetery or the meetups where they would, you know, exchange photos with folks. And I went with my mom to the cemetery. This was about five years ago. We pull into this rural cemetery. It's up on a, a hill And we're walking around looking at these markers. Lots of our ancestors are buried there. And this gentleman pulls up in a pickup truck. He's got the gun rack on the back, you know. (laughs) And, you know, here I am with my, you know, my 80-year-old mother. And I'm I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Because here we are, people from the city down here in the country, walking around in a cemetery. And the gentleman comes up and he, he asks us, he's like, do you have people in here? And we're like, yes, we do. And he's like, oh, he's like, we're probably cousins. 
And so we start talking to him, learning that he, you know, owns the farm right next to the cemetery and he keeps an eye on the place, thankfully. And so the next thing you know, he's inviting us back to his house. Uh, we, we discovered that we were third cousins during that conversation. And he was like, so is this stuff stuff you're interested in that's important to you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it is. He's like, well, hold on a second. Goes back into his back room, comes back with this box, opens it up, and it's all of this family ephemera, wow. uh, photo albums, family Bible, marriage documents, birth records. And then this was the icing on the cake. He had the Sexton's record of the cemetery yeah. who was buried in the cemetery. He had the paper, like the document. Wow. And um, he was like, do you want this stuff? And I said, yes, I would we'd love to have this. He's like, good. He's like, because I'm an old man. I'm not going to be around here much longer. And when I die, this stuff is all going to get thrown out. So here, take it. Very cool. So, you know, I, I share this because this is a typical, this is what happens in Kentucky. And it's why it's so important that you do descendancy research and you learn who your cousins are. And it's not easy doing that type of research, but the payoffs can be enormous. You know, not everyone has family uh, ephemera, but there are a lot of people who do. And sometimes they don't even know what they have, but they know they've got a box sitting on a shelf somewhere and they'll open it up and they'll share it with you. So that is to me the most important Kentucky record collection because your cousins could have something that is really important to you. So we help our members learn about things like that, you know, learn insights like that that can help them do research. You know, a lot of folks, when they're doing research, they just think of like, who are my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents. Yeah. Well, to get to house repositories, you've got to, you've got to go beyond that. You know? yep. so, yeah, absolutely. Chris, I hate to interrupt, but it's time for a break for a few minutes. Sure. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Attention all family historians. Embark on a journey into your past by becoming a proud member of the esteemed Kentucky Genealogical Society. Unleash a multitude of exclusive benefits that await you. Since its inception in 1973, the Kentucky Genealogical Society has remained steadfast in its support for genealogy enthusiasts worldwide, regardless of their geographical location. Enrich your genealogy expertise with their comprehensive genealogy education programs. As a member, you'll enjoy complimentary access to a wide array of regularly scheduled genealogy programs. They have an extensive learning library brimming with webinars from industry experts and Kentucky specialists, all accessible exclusively to members. Delve into a treasure trove of content featuring a unique collection of Kentucky records, including early statehood tax list images, and much more. Discover a diverse selection of on-demand genealogy programs curated to elevate your genealogical knowledge. Connect with fellow Kentucky researchers through the Society's engaging front porch talks discussion groups. Engage in volunteer opportunities to extend a helping hand to other family researchers, fostering a sense of community, 
Plus, as a member, you gain access to excellent discounts on the biannual seminars. Exclusively dedicated to genealogy research across all 120 counties of Kentucky, the Kentucky Genealogical Society stands alone as the state's premier organization for genealogical exploration. Regardless of your level of expertise, if you have a passion for genealogy research, you're welcome to join the ranks and enjoy the outstanding member benefits they offer. Immerse yourself in a vibrant community of like-minded individuals and play a pivotal role in preserving Kentucky's rich heritage. Don't delay. Embrace your genealogical journey and join the Kentucky Genealogical Society today. For more information, visit kygs.org. You'll be glad you did. It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. Welcome to Book Shorts. I've often commented on this podcast that I sincerely wonder who's telling the stories of the history of today's events and today's people. In the past, people used to publish books like The History of the County, which often included biographies of the people in a given county. These were wonderful books, and family historians used these books extensively as reference material for their ancestors' lives and times. The conundrum is that, at least to my knowledge, no one is writing these books any longer. And so my fear is that it may actually become much more difficult for future family researchers to find information about their ancestors, their communities, and their lives during these times. I ran across a book that I think you'll like and that addresses this issue. On this installment of Book Shorts, we're very privileged to be joined by author Michelle Fishburne to chat about her new book, Who We Are Now, Stories of What Americans Lost and Found During the COVID-19 Pandemic. I believe this book will help every reader understand how others were feeling about the pandemic and how they dealt with the dramatic shift in our lives during this time in history. The book is published by UNC Press. Michelle, welcome to Book Shorts. Thank you, Sean, for having me. I really appreciate it. First of all, I'd like to say how awesome the concept of your new book is. I'm really excited about people meeting the 100 people in this book. So I, I appreciate that you're excited because I think people will really connect with each and every one of them. Yeah, 100 people. That's fantastic. How did you think of this idea? Well, it didn't come about a natural way. Maybe a lot of ideas don't. I had lost my job in the COVID spring from a nonprofit and I was laid off. And I tried for months and months and months to find a new job and I had no success. And so on July 30th of 2020, the lease on my post-divorce house was up and my youngest was going off to college. So I found myself without a house, a spouse, a job, or a kid to take care of. And that was pretty scary for a 57-year-old woman who never thought that she was going to be in that position. And so, but what I did have was my motorhome and my dog, Buddy, and tons of curiosity about what people's lives were like during the pandemic. And every time I heard about a new like type of profession in the, like in the pandemic, like what somebody was going through, like a ballet dancer, how does a ballet dancer in a ballet company keep their, their muscle memory and everything when they can't practice with everybody else. So I was super curious. 
And so I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do when the movers come and take all my stuff and put it in storage and I move into my motorhome? And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to start driving and I'm going to, I'm just going to ask people about their lives during the pandemic. And I don't know if you're familiar with Humans of New York, Brandon Stanton's work. No. But he went and he went and photographed thousands of people. And as he was doing it, he asked them about their lives. And I thought, all right, I'll sort of do a Humans of New York website. I'll share it on social media and I'll use this to get a job and then I'll be done. But as I was doing it, people said to me, you mean this isn't a book? You mean you aren't preserving this for posterity? You mean you aren't offering this up to the rest of the world so that they can process what we've all been through? And so then I realized that I was actually being pretty selfish and that really it's something I needed to do for everybody. So that's how it became a book. Wow, that's fantastic. What a great idea. Can you give us an overview of the book? Sure. I interviewed hundreds of people all over the United States, most of them face-to-face, between September 2020 and September 2021 about their lives during the pandemic. I made sure that they were very, very diverse people uh, from all over the country. And I asked them all the same question, which was this. It's January 1st, 2020. What was your 2020 supposed to be like? And what did it end up being like through to the present? And I recorded them on my phone on the Otter app, which is a transcription app. So I caught their audio and it turned it into text. And most people spoke for about 30 to 45 minutes, almost literally without breathing. I just, people were so ready to tell their story. It was pretty incredible. You have a great cross-section of individuals in different fields. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, a, a ballet company manager, a mayor, a gun shop owner, a restaurant owner in New York City, a hair salon stylist in a retirement community in Montana, uh, a mobile accessory business owner in Georgia, nurses, doctors, parents who lost children, performing actors and musicians. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a broad, diverse group. Fantastic. Where's the best place for somebody to get a copy of the book? Well, I think the easiest thing to do probably is to go to my website, whowearenow.us, and go to the book page, and that tells you various places where you can get it online. And of course, go to your independent bookstores, and hopefully they will have it. And I'm doing some book events. My my first one is a virtual book event with Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn the night before the book comes out in hard copy on March 14th. So on March 13th, I'll be talking about it. And my interviewer will be a gentleman by the name of Chris Belair, who is a monologue writer for Jimmy Fallon's show. And Chris is in the book, and he will be interviewing me virtually about the various people in the book. Oh, that's fantastic. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. The handle is who we are now USA. I have to follow you there. Oh, thank you. Yep, no problem. Are you working on another book? I am. It, it's been hard to find another subject that is equally as compelling. And so I had thought about climate change uh, and then pivoted to something that was a little bit more, I don't know, up 
beat. So I was going to go around and interview people about their unusual lives, living in tree houses and lighthouses and off the grid and people living in school buses, etc. And that was the plan. And I had already started it. But uh, this past weekend, I lost my little traveling companion, Buddy. And so I don't know that I want to go and do the motorhome all over again for 12,000 miles without him. So I am reassessing. But for sure, there's going to be another Who We Are Now book. And what the topic will be, maybe I don't quite yet know, but it'll have the same format, which is a listening, just a listening and sharing out of a collection of diverse people's stories about something that touches each of us. I thank you so much for doing this work. That is just great. Well, I I really enjoy it. And I, I fell into it just by being curious about everybody else. And Sean, one of the things I found on the road is almost every person I interviewed after I interviewed them, they said to me, how is everybody else doing? How are people doing out there? Can you tell me a story? Like we're all curious about each other. We really are. It's one of the great things about being human. Fantastic. Well, I hope your book does well, and I really appreciate it. Listeners, order a copy of this excellent book, which tells an important true life story about today's history of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, Michelle, for being a guest on Book Shorts, and I'd like to thank you for your time and for your book. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me on again. You come back anytime when you write your next one. Look me up. Sounds great. You got a deal. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right, listeners. Michelle also has a website about the book. The URL is www.whowearenow.us. If anyone would like to follow Michelle's life as a full-time nomad living and working from her RV, Airbnbs, and house-setting gigs, You can follow her on Instagram at Michelle Fishburne, that's F-I-S-H-B-U-R-N-E, and or TikTok at Michelle.Fishburne. Everyone can order this new book, Who We Are Now, Stories of What Americans Lost and Found During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Once you've read it, be sure to leave a review, and I'd love to hear from you as well with comments about what you think of the book. I thank you in advance for doing that. Much appreciated. Okay, we'll see you all on the next Book Shorts. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Chris Paget, the president of the Kentucky Genealogical Society. Chris, let's pick up where we left off, and welcome back. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Chris, I want to ask you how it came to be that you were president of the Kentucky Genealogical Society. So when I was young, very young, my, my parents were both family historians. My, my grandfather was a storyteller. My grandmother was an artist. Uh, so my dad, he was a huge storyteller and he loved story. And my mom, she's more introverted. She was more uh, the recorder. She liked to take down information. And so growing up, they were very interested in their family history, and they would take me on lots of adventures on the weekends to county courthouses and archives, and they were involved in genealogical societies and meeting up with family members, elderly family members, and doing oral history interviews and visiting cemeteries and and all this sort of thing. And so I was exposed to that frequently uh, as a young person. and. 
it, once you kind of you have those experiences, they start to kind of grow on you. Mm-hmm. And I, at one point in life, lived in Washington, D.C., and then at one point in life, lived in Chicago. So I've been able to research in places like the National Archives. I've researched in the Newberry Library in Chicago. And then I just, at some point, I just started becoming very interested in it. And it's like, a you know, once you are into it, you're into it. And so I enjoy traveling to places where my ancestors once lived. I love going to different institutions that have record collections. And I joined the society, I believe in 2017, because uh, they had a, they offered a program that I was interested in. And then, you know, one thing led to another, and then I was serving on the board. And then um, a lot of the board members, they had done their part and they wanted to move on. So I served on the board and then I became president. And so I'm now wrapping up the fourth year of my I'm in a two-year term. We have term limits. So my term ends at the end of December, which has been a wonderful experience. It has been a lot of work. My term started in January, uh, right before COVID hit. So we did a lot of pivoting early on, embracing of technology, moving to virtual. So that first term, we lost actually a number of board members. They just, you know, they had to refocus on things that were important to them different things, different priorities. And so this current term that we're in, I could not, just as president, I didn't feel like I could walk away at this point, that I needed to make sure we had the right leadership and team in place to sustain the organization moving forward. Plus, we were coming up on our 50th anniversary. So uh, I've been at this for four years as president. It's been an exhilarating experience. I've learned so much about Kentucky researchers, you know, the the diversity of researchers, what's important to them, what's not important to them. And I would say that I like listening to people. So, you know, just as a family historian, you are listening to your ancestors. To be an effective leader of a a genealogical society, you've got to listen to your membership. And, And you've got to empower your other leaders in your organization to have their own area to focus on and you know, it's it's been kind of a, an interesting roller coaster, but I'm I'm ready to pass the baton off at the end of my term to uh, a, a new president, which we'll be electing here soon. And so, yeah, it's it, it, it's been a, a crazy wild time to to be leading an organization during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I can say honestly, myself, and I'm sure the listeners know that your tenure as president has been fantastic. I can see nothing but positive things that have gone on and you know you've led a great effort to move the society forward absolutely well it's been fun and the most gratifying thing as a leader of one of these organizations to see is when you have other volunteers who are are stepping up you can look at things and say you know this is this is going to be left in good hands and this organization is going to be sustained well into the future which is very important you don't ever want to lead an organization and when your term ends it, everything sort of falls apart you don't yeah. want that to happen so well you've obviously got genealogy in your blood what was the personal first big find in genealogy for you the one that gave you chicken skin or perhaps a tear the one that made you jump out of your chair and yell yeah, yeah that's that's a really tough question <laughs> there have actually been several I, I will share one that is recent which is in Kentucky, the court records 
have all largely been preserved. And so, and this is unique from other states from what I've learned. So you can actually go and if there is a civil matter or a, a criminal matter, you can get access to to old court records. They were preserved through the different the circuit court clerks and the Kentucky Archives has a lot of these records. So I was doing research on one of my lines, a very unique surname. Surname is Skeeters. This is my great-grandmother's last name. Anyone who has that name in the United States, we're all related. So, and there's very few people who have it, but I was doing research on my great-grandmother's father, didn't know anything about him, knew he died young, had visited his gravesite, but, you know, just, he was one of those people where I had names and dates and that was it. And a newspaper got digitized that had not been digitized. And in that newspaper, I found this feature article about my my great-grandmother's father. And what had happened was he had a cousin who was involved in moonshine and who, and this is a, this is a Kentucky story. So, you know, for anyone who, um, you may want to close your ears if you don't want to hear this, but he was in this, this cousin was involved in moonshine. He also had a house of prostitution and he, you know, he was, he was doing all this bootleg moonshine. And so the feds, found out about this guy and so they went and they you know disrupted his his business and so he got on his horse rode over to my second great-grandfather's farm thinking that he had turned him into the feds which he hadn't but didn't matter he he was yeah. upset and he, so he rode over to his arm he knocked on the door and my second great-grandfather opens the door and his cousin begins shooting at him. Oh my. And so my great great grandfather, you know, doesn't get shot, gets out his double barrel shotgun and empties the buckshot into his cousin and he kills him. And so uh, you know, I'm I'm reading this the story in the newspaper and I'm like, oh my goodness, why has no one ever talked about the story in my family? Like, you know, why didn't this get passed down, right? Because you know, there's always stories that you, that are never passed down for one reason or another. Yeah. So then I, you know, I'm like, wait a second. I bet you there was a. This was like a. There was some sort of a criminal case around this. This is. This is. There's a lot of lot going on here. So I went to the Kentucky archives. I said, do you have this court case? And I was able because of that newspaper to give them the date, the location, the names. They came back to me within 48 hours with a digitized version of the court case. I think it cost me like 10 or $15. Oh, cool. It was about 75 pages. It included everything from a list of the, the jury, the, the members of the jury, to notes of the judge, all of the evidence that was entered into the case. And so, you know, basically what I learned was, you know, it was one of these issues where a family member, they just were upset. They, they sort of, they didn't know what to do. They thought maybe, maybe they, they were having uh, this other family member had gotten them in trouble. They hadn't, but uh, there was, you know, an inquest and they ended up finding my ancestor, you know, innocent for for reasons of self-defense. It was fascinating to read the list of the jurors. Some of them were cousins of my ancestor and the man who had been shot and killed. 
So they were cousins of both of these people, you know, because this is in a little small community. The jury is going to be made up of the people who lived around you. Those are going to be your cousins, right? So finding all that information out is part of what was what made me realize why it was so important to get more Kentucky records digitized because there are stories like this out there that people just don't know about. And because they're on a newspaper that hasn't been digitized or in a book that or a, a collection that hasn't been digitized. So that was that was a really interesting, you know, just piecing all that together. You know, is typical Kentucky story. Moonshine is really uh, that was like a thing in Kentucky as it was in a lot of places. Oh, yeah. And being able to now, you know, I don't have a picture of that ancestor, but I, I have a picture in my mind of what he had to endure and. You know, can you imagine having to go grab your your no. double barrel shotgun to to uh, save your life? That's um, really crazy. So yeah, so but again, that's like a typical Kentucky story. There, there are stories like this all over the place, just waiting to be told. And there's more about that ancestor that I, ha- I haven't had the time to focus on in research, but I find that to be fascinating. And I and I I got a map of where this incident took place. I got in my car one day, drove there wanted to see it see it with my own eyes take photographs of this location of course none of the the structures aren't there anymore but i got a sense of like this is where all this happened you know so is that the ancestor that you would believe that you're most attached to because you know them so well or is there someone else in your tree oh goodness there's a lot of people that i i'm attached to i i'm one of those people who actually believes that we uh, you know our values and the choices that we make are that our ancestors play a big role in them. I, I think that the values that I walk around with and that I carry inside of me are the values of my ancestors. You know, it's I have an ancestor who served in the Spanish-American War. He he was quite a character. He was a German. He was immigrated to the United States with his his mother and his father. You know, starting out, his life was sort of like ups and downs. You know, like all of our lives, right? And so. He worked for a beer company. He was the head uh, doorman of a hotel in in, uh, Louisville and then in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he struggled with his relationships. Uh, He was married multiple times. He had children with multiple women. Some of them he wasn't married to, you know. And so there are lots of records of his life, whether it was from his war service uh, in the Spanish-American War, or court cases he was involved in, mm-hmm. or what I learned a few years ago, we knew he had had a, a set of twins, but no one in the family sort of ever talked about them. And one day I decided, I'm going to find out who these twins were. And I f- discovered their names, and I I located the son of one of them who was still living. And, you know, it was kind of an unusual situation. I wrote this guy like a a cold letter with a, you know, put it, wrote it in my hand, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, sent it to him, gave him my phone number, told him who I was. I was interested if he knew any information about this man that I was researching, who was his grandfather. And he wrote me back and then he said, I'm going to call you. So he called me on the phone. He's like, I think I know who this is. He's like, you know, my father never really talked about him, but uh, in his Bible, when he died, I found a picture of this this man that you're talking about, and his name was written on the back of it. Do you want a copy of this picture? And I was oh, like, yes, yeah. I want a copy of the picture. And 
we began exchanging information about this person. And through that process, I discovered he had another daughter who she got estranged from the family. So she would have been my great-grandmother's half-sister. She ended up, she at some point was in jail when she was a juvenile. You can't access juvenile prison records in Kentucky. I learned that one. But once she got out of jail, she her life turned around. She moved out to San Francisco, California, to the Castro District. And she, she uh, did pretty well, outlived her husband. They had no children. And so I'm, I'm researching her one day, and I discover her death record, discover where she's buried. And I'm like, you know, this woman owned a house in the Castro. What, like, what happened with her things? You know, I'm just I'm sort of sitting there thinking, like, she owned property. So I contact the courthouse out in San Francisco. They send me, after a fairly lengthy process, they send me her probate record. I'm going through it. It lists her heirs, people of names I've never heard of before. So I, I go to contact these folks. There's four of them. Three of them are deceased. One is still living. So I have this phone call with this gentleman. And, and he's like, I, I have a box of her things. Do you want them? Oh, yeah. But yeah, I'd love them. You know, so sends me this box, open it up. And first thing is like a baby photo. And then there's photos from different religious sacraments that she had. All this information about this life of this person who I'd never met until just recently, didn't know her name. But looking at her, she's definitely one of my people. And so it's it's fascinating kind of going through all of that and trying to pull together a story of a person's life that you've never met before. I could tell you stories like this for hours. I don't know that I feel as connected with her dad uh, as much as I... He, may, he, he lived a very complicated life. You know, the life of an immigrant coming into this country. Yeah having to learn English, having to like get acclimated socially, struggling with his relationships, you know, getting in trouble with the law, getting into a fist fight when he was drunk one night, you know, things of this nature. I, I think I am drawn to his story just because it's an American story, right? Yeah. And, and, and here all these years later, he probably never thought that he'd have one of his descendants trying to piece his life together and using things like DNA tests and you know, things of that nature. But that's what we do as researchers. And I just love learning more about the people that I come from. And everyone is sort of unique and interesting. And, I, and it, with each of them, there's a little bit of them that I see in myself, you know, and I'm not like all of them. And I'm not like all of their aspects and traits, but there are certain traits that I see. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is a trait from this ancestors. I believe the same way you do, that our ancestors are sort of in us in some way. And I see correlations from my life to their life. And I want to tell listeners that what you've just heard from Chris is that you're not alone. This ride is part of genealogy research. It's what makes it so interesting. You get to know the people that you're researching and you develop a connection to them. Hey, Chris, what kind of funding model supports the society? What are your funding goals this year? Yeah, so we, we're really lucky. We have, because we've been in existence for 50 years, we have had a following of members that every year renew their memberships. And our membership dues are $20 a year. So we've 
We've thought about raising them multiple times, but what we believe is that we want the the ability to access the community to be as low as possible so as many people can participate. And so um, membership's $20 annually. We have a lot of members who make donations to the society. They donate 20, 50, 100, $1,000. And so we're able to sustain the society and keep our dues low because of the generosity of our members. And again, we do do fundraising for different projects, but all of the fundraising that we do goes to things such as our digitization grant fund or other projects that we're working on at the time. So yeah, if you want to become a member, it's $20 a year. The organization is financially, it's in a good, sound, solid place. And we appreciate all the members that have worked so hard over many years to to do that. We're very prudent when it comes to how we spend resources. Our model, because it's virtual, it allows us to not have to spend money on things that you would expect to spend money on if you were a brick and mortar organization. Thank you for that. I read on your website that the Kentucky Genealogical Society is looking for speakers and writers. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we're constantly seeking folks who have insight about researching some aspect of Kentucky, whether that's a methodology, a record collection, a location, a religion, you name it. If it has anything to do with Kentucky and you are interested in sharing your story, if you're a writer, we invite folks, we have sort of an open invite for folks to write for Bluegrass Roots, which is our our blog. And we have a content team that does all the editing and you know all of that type of work. Uh, but we'd love to hear from uh, new voices. And the same goes for speakers. We're constantly looking for speakers that have, you know, it can be very niche information about Kentucky. In fact, those sometimes are the best presentations. We recently had a member present on uh, researching Chinese immigrants to Kentucky. And, and you know, when I, we were talking about this, the person was like, do you think anyone would have an interest in this? I'm like, you know what? Yeah, let's, oh, yeah. let's, and, and we, and we had a great, great response, great turnout for that presentation. So it doesn't matter. You know, some people might think, oh, this isn't really good for a statewide genealogical society. You'd be amazed. There's interest in lots of different topics that you know, we have a, we have a presentation on the horizon on a Kentucky Jewish genealogy. We're constantly doing uh, presentations on topics that are unique that, you know, help people kind of understand how to research their Kentucky ancestors, regardless of like who they are, or where they came from or what they did. Do you recommend or offer researchers if people would like help? We do have on our website, a list of our professional members, and you can access that at kygs.org. And we have different members who focus on different areas and different archives. So you can go onto the website if you're looking to hire a researcher and you can get in contact with one of those member researchers. We're not involved in the contracting process. We just publish that list as a public service because there are some folks that just want to hire a researcher. They're not interested in in doing their own research. And if that's the case, most of the members that I think are on that list are members of the Association of Professional Genealogists, which I always tell folks is a good resource to tap into because they have an ethics code and they have a, a remediation process if you ever have any issues. I think most of the members that we have on that list are members of APG. Okay, cool. 
I was reading on your website that you have a learning library. What can you tell us about that? Yes. So that is, that's a really great member benefit. It's, I believe, over 125 video recordings of presentations that have been presented to the members of the society. We record all of our presentations. We put them in that archive. And so when you become a member, you renew your membership, you're able to access the learning library and view those uh, videos on demand. And that is actually one of the most highly trafficked portions of our website. We get a report. I get a report every month on the amount of time that people are spending in the learning library. Last month, it was over 26 days uh, of content being viewed in that library. So it is a, it's a very well-used resource. And it's there are topics on there on just about everything pertaining to Kentucky research. Um, so it's a, a really great resource. And membership is only $20? That's right. I also was reading that you have front porch talks. What's that about? Right. So, you know, for folks who are needing more social interaction, you know, a lot of researchers are introverts, but you you can kind of be out there and be alone and you want to have other people to talk to you about whether it's genealogical research or things that are as a result of the research you're doing. So we have these front porch talks, which are virtual get togethers. People get together focused on topics that are relevant to them. So there are three presently. One is Kentucky pre-1850. So it's people who are researching their Kentucky ancestors pre-1850. There's unique challenges that come to that. So you can interact with folks, very social. It meets once a month and it's virtual. So we have participants in that kind of all over the place. Uh, We have a group meeting that is all things DNA. So if you're into DNA or just getting into DNA or want to use DNA, there's a front porch talk around DNA. And finally, there's a front porch talk uh, right now around Scots-Irish. There's a lot of Scots-Irish in Kentucky. Oh, and yeah. so, and that's a really difficult group to research. So we have a front porch talk around that. We are looking at doing some additional front porch talks in the future and also what we're calling just like pop-ups. We might just do a topic on one thing pertaining to Kentucky research where folks can do that virtually and participate. Fantastic. That's great. What kinds of volunteer opportunities does the society have for members and the public? Right. So we have a number of volunteer opportunities. We're always looking for content contributors, folks who are really good with editing or writing or organizing. Folks who are organized, are, we can put them to work on lots of different things. Uh, of course, we produce a lot of virtual events, so we need people to help us with that. We do fundraising, so if you enjoy fundraising, We have volunteer roles for that. We need volunteers to help us coordinate volunteers. So that's always something that if you enjoy working with people, maybe you have an HR background, we we love to make sure that our volunteers are being acknowledged for the, the, the work that they're doing. And maybe you've got a special gift or talent that I haven't mentioned. We can find something for you to do. Yeah. So. I noticed on your website, you have a, a section called job openings. And I wasn't yeah. sure if that was volunteer or actual paid jobs. No, those are all volunteer opportunities. Okay. So the society has no paid staff. It's completely grassroots. Everyone's volunteer. And, uh, but yeah, those are all current active volunteer openings that we're recruiting for. Oh, fantastic. So it's right there for people to, to look at. Yes. Chris, what's the easiest method for members of the public to donate to the society? Yeah, they can just go to kygs.org and... You can make a donation online. Oh, very cool. 
Chris, it's time for a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Discover the joy of connecting with new faces, the fulfillment of contributing to a charitable cause, and the excitement of acquiring new skills. Embrace the opportunity to make a difference in the lives of others and, above all, in your own life. Become a part of the Kentucky Genealogical Society's volunteer community. Channel your skills and passion into significant projects including digitization and educational endeavors, research initiatives, and community outreach programs. Join the devoted team, playing a crucial role in preserving the captivating stories that define the very essence of Kentucky's identity. Regardless of your physical location, you can be a valued volunteer at the Kentucky Genealogical Society. To take the first step, Visit them at kygs.org. You'll be glad you did. This is Kirk Dillon, a friend of Sean Radcliffe's. Preservation Oaks brings you unbeatable information about museums, cultural, heritage, historical, and genealogical societies across the United States. It is a most enjoyable program that enables the public to look under the covers, as it were, and to feel completely comfortable with their decision to donate, join, volunteer with and support their organization of choice. I strongly encourage you all to give three cheers to the unsung heroes that are our nation's preservation oaks, for the hard work they do at your local society. It's very important work that really must be done properly, with everyone in the community helping as much as possible. Please follow, like, and listen to each episode of Preservation Oaks, but much more importantly, do please join, donate, and volunteer at one or more of your local societies. Thank you very much. Um, let me catch up on Preservation Oaks emails. Here's one from Sandy in New York, she says. Is it out yet? Okay, here's another one, it's Bill in Arizona, saying, is it out yet? Oh man, and now it's Sarah in Minnesota. Hi, is it out yet? Stop, I can't read all these. Let me tell you all, the wait is over. A new episode of Preservation Oaks is released every two weeks, stuffed with information, history, genealogy, and everything you need to know to support your favorite cultural, genealogical, or historical society or museum throughout the United States. Listen to each new episode only at Preservation Oaks. Yes. This is Dave McFarland, director of the Montgomery County, Iowa Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Dave Hurlbrink, the president of the National Agriculture Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio.
This is Andrew Pankratz, curator of the Dickinson County Historical Society and Museum, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on Microsteam Radio. Buckle up for safety, buckle up. Buckle up for safety, always buckle up. Pull your seatbelt stuck, give an extra tuck. Buckle up for safety, buckle up. Buckle up for safety, buckle up. Buckle up for safety, always buckle up. The National Safety Council says if you don't have seatbelts, get them. If you do have seatbelts, use them. Ah, hello. Um, good evening, Mr. Martin. It's Hans here. Um, sorry to call you at home, but it's about the new building, the, um, new building we had the grand opening for last month. The $125 million building. Well, you know how we here use the metric system, obviously. Turns out the engineers don't. So, because of that it appears to be leaning somewhat dramatically. We got jacks and might save it yet, but, um, statistically speaking it's unlikely. So please call me back, please. Have some unexpected free time coming up soon? Make good use of your free time listening to Preservation Oaks. I was created by a blacksmith named John, who made me out of steel and wood. I was so slick. John took me around to all the farms and sold me to Bill Warner. Bill used me every season and I did my job with Cosmo and Rusty Pulling. Before I came along, days in the field were difficult for farmers, because they had to regularly interrupt their work to clean the sticky prairie soil off the share. I worked every season. After 30 seasons, and several changes of animals pulling me, my blades were greased, I was put into the shed and not used again. I was replaced by newer models with more bottoms and pulled using an engine. I lay there for years, collecting dust. The wood on me rotting. Finally, Bill's son pulled me out of there and donated me to the local historical society. They cataloged me, shined me up, oiled me, and made sure all my wooden parts were like new. Now, I'm on display for everyone, and they marvel at my simple design. There's a sign next to me telling people that my name is Grasshopper made by John. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. 9 out of 10 listeners agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Chris Paget, the president of the Kentucky Genealogical Society. Chris, you've got a great society. We've learned a lot. Thanks for the information you provided to our audience about your society. Thank you. Glad to be back. 
Hey, why is the society important to your members and Kentuckians, and what makes your organization different or unique from others? Well, you know, Kentucky is important to American history and to so many families' genealogy. So many people migrated through Kentucky, whether they uh, lived in Kentucky and died in Kentucky or they spent a few years in Kentucky. Kentucky played a really important role in, in our country's history. And our members, I think, are, you know, they have a connection to Kentucky, whether they live in Kentucky or they live in Germany or, you know, in Canada or Washington State. They have Kentucky roots. And so that's the tie that binds all of our members together. Yeah, makes sense. Chris, is there any other information or message you'd like your members to know about? Well, if you are researching your Kentucky ancestors, you definitely want to get a copy of The Essential Guide to Kentucky Family Research and Kentucky and its Kin. Those are both resources that can help you. And you can also, by doing that, you can support the Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund. So it's not only you're getting great insights about research in, in Kentucky, but you're helping to get Kentucky records accessible, which can benefit everybody. And I think that our members are just wonderful. They are so supportive. You know, we have folks that become members. They tend to stay members a long time. Sometimes they'll forget to pay their membership for six months, but they'll be back, you know, and they're, they're great folks. And we have folks in all different locations, which makes it fun. They bring different perspectives to the table. You know, most people would probably be surprised to learn that about 75% of our membership doesn't live in Kentucky. Well, that's because there's so many Kentucky ancestors that left Kentucky and went somewhere else. So, you know, whether or not the member lives in, in Kentucky or in Burlington, Vermont, or Hamburg, Germany, it really doesn't matter. We value all of them, and we're just appreciative that they are members of the society. Except for Rhode Island. we got to get somebody in Rhode Island. <laughs> I mean, there's got to be at least one person, right? We had someone reach out and say, I don't live in Rhode Island. I live in Massachusetts. Does that count? <laughs> like, nope, got to be in Rhode Island. So. <laughs> I want all the listeners to go out and buy these books. There's two of them, The Essential Guide to Kentucky Family Research and Kentucky and Its Kin, An In-Depth Guide to Genealogical Resources in Kentucky and Beyond. And I'd like you to buy two or three of them and give some away as gifts. They're beautiful books. I mean, beautiful. Yeah, and, and donate one to your local library, you know. Uh, and, and maybe you can't afford the book. Ask for it at your library. See if your library's reference department will put it in their, their shelves so you can get access to That's it. such a great idea. Chris, reflecting just a bit, how do you think your members and volunteers view you and the society in terms of benefits and value? I would like to think that they get a tremendous amount of value for their membership, and that is by design. It would be very easy for us to charge a lot more for membership, but because our model is virtual, we are sensitive to the fact that there's a lot of folks in Kentucky that just can't afford to be able to participate in a community like this. They don't have a whole lot of extra spending money. So we want to make the community as accessible as possible. And so, you know, the $20 annual, that's really, that's us getting your information in our database so that we have you. And that's your way of saying like, you, you want to be a participant in the community. But we think you get a tremendous amount of value for what you put into the community. Chris, I want to express my gratitude for the time you've spent with us. 
it's been an enjoyable experience all the way around. Meeting you has been an absolute pleasure. You're a great communicator. I got to commend you and your team for the outstanding work showcased on your website, the efforts you all put into assisting genealogists interested in Kentucky and beyond are truly great. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Chris Paget, the president of the Kentucky Genealogical Society. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap up, which is coming up next. travels across our magnificent nation, I have often found myself contemplating the factors that distinguish good organizations from the truly exceptional ones. Through this journey, I've come to realize that the defining element is the indomitable human spirit. This insight becomes strikingly evident to me when I consider the Kentucky Genealogical Society, also known as KYGS an organization that radiates a remarkable abundance of human spirit. This spirit manifests not only in the passion of its president, Chris Paget, whose veins course with a love for genealogy, but also in the dedicated volunteers and members who compose the fabric of this society. Such a quality renders KYGS a truly exceptional and unparalleled entity. Spanning 49 states, their membership base reaches far and wide. With a one-time-only open invitation extended to Rhode Island residents to join free of charge. Consider the Kentucky Genealogical Society. Even when faced with numerous challenges, they stand undaunted to fulfill the mission of a statewide genealogical society. The bulk of Kentucky's genealogical records remain offline veiled from digital access. Individuals across the state remain oblivious to the fact that their family's historical ephemera could find a cherished home within the Kentucky Genealogical Society. Rooted in Kentucky's heritage, county-level genealogical societies aspire to maintain independence from the statewide counterpart thus fostering an opportunity to improve the collaboration among these intertwined organizations. Yet, despite these obstacles, as of 2023, the Kentucky Genealogical Society operates a thriving virtual community, a venture that not only economizes for its members, but also extends its services to the broader public. Their compendium of lectures and collections has been masterfully digitized and made freely accessible online, transcending the boundaries of membership. The financial savings derived from this endeavor fuel the fulfillment of their mission. In this momentous 50th anniversary year, KYGS is proud to unveil two invaluable genealogical resource books. The Essential Guide to Kentucky Family Research, and Kentucky and Its Kin, 
a comprehensive guide to genealogical resources in Kentucky and beyond. Moreover, a number of virtual educational programs are poised to grace the calendar throughout the year. Foremost on the Kentucky Genealogical Society's agenda is the provision of funding grants earmarked for the digitization of exceptional, heretofore undigitized Kentucky records with the aim of benefiting the widest possible audience. The impetus behind this grants program finds its source in the profits garnered from the publication of the aforementioned books. These profits bolster the Kentucky Digitization Grant Fund, an endeavor undoubtedly deserving of admiration. One of those grants supports the digitization of the Jefferson County Bullet Family Papers, and it is almost complete. These papers included the names of enslaved persons. These names will be added to the KYGS Omica Record Repository, which is free to access for anyone. If you are a descendant of one of those folks, they'll be online shortly. Furthermore, a partnership with FamilySearch is a testament to KYGS's commitment to expediting the digitization and accessibility of Kentucky records for researchers within the state. KYGS is working with FamilySearch to canvas the state to track down and document where undigitized records are in the state. This is going to get good, folks. Wonderful stuff. The first digitization effort is for Jefferson County and the 1800 to 1910 estate settlement records. These will be going live in the very near future. The next records will be from three big northern Kentucky counties. KYGS just keeps hitting it out of the park, man. Operating on a foundation of donations and volunteers, the Kentucky Genealogical Society is wholly sustained by the benevolence of those who share in its vision. I beseech you to consider lending your support to this commendable cause. Chris Paget has meticulously reviewed the intricacies of the Society's funding and fundraising strategies assuring contributors of the transparent allocation of funds and alignment with the Society's priorities. Not only that, but there's some very impressive benefits for members. It's the best $20 annually you'll ever spend. Great value. Now to contact the Kentucky Genealogical Society, you can contact them on their website at kygs.org. They're on Facebook as KYGENSOC. You can go to their Amica site, which is free to anyone, and it has all their digitized records. That's at kygs.omeka.net. That's their archive. And on X, which used to be known as Twitter, as Kentucky Genealogical Society at Kentucky Society. Okay, if questions occur to you, please connect with the Society via the contact information provided. If you're a listener researching ancestors in Kentucky and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the Society. As I said, it's the best $20 annually you'll ever spend. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Society is to family historians researching Kentucky ancestors. The Kentucky Genealogical Society is truly one of our preservation oaks. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Heart Drum Machine. 
the 126ers, Chris Hagen, Steve Adams, and Symbolbird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.